Welcome to the Breaks and Joins podcast. I'm Sue Mayo and I'm working on a project about repair, repair of our stuff, ourselves and our communities. And in each episode, we meet somebody who's really deeply involved somehow in repair of all kinds. Really hope you enjoy the podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe and share it with your friends. My name is Chuck Blue Lowry, and I am a filmmaker working on the project. I will be editing all of the podcasts. The podcasts have been recorded in line with social distancing measures. So if you do hear the occasional background noise, like a dog barking or a dodgy internet connection, it's all just part of the recording from home setup. Regardless of that, we have some fantastic conversations in store for you, and we really hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. A massive warm welcome to Sarah Pimenta, who's a visual artist. She's a screen print artist who runs Social Fabric. She's also an author, and we're going to hear about her new book, which comes out in June this year, and also about the art of facilitation and collaboration. We're going to have a great conversation. It's lovely to see you, Sarah. I think you're in East Grinstead. Yes, thanks. <laughs> I don't know why I said it so hesitantly. I used to go through the outside of East Grinstead frequently when I did a project in a lovely National Trust property called Sheffield Park. Have you been there? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful park. It's a lovely place to visit. It is a really lovely place. And I often thought of you when I drove past. <laughs> but I think you work all over the place, don't you? Yes, it's it's funny actually because um I lived in London for many years, but I grew up here and I never totally planned on coming back, but when my son was little, I moved back so I was near family um for support and all those reasons. And then I've I've stayed ever since, but I've worked in London my whole career. But I mean I absolutely love London and um when I first started working with Cloth of Gold, the studios were based in Kilburn. So I just found myself in London a lot. But I haven't not worked locally either. So um funnily enough, last week I've been working in Crawley, which is where I went to school. And um I'm doing a project there at the moment. And then the week before I was in London again, and I quite like the fact that I get to travel all over the place. So I've been all over the world now, so I've been quite lucky. That's fantastic, yeah. Can you tell us what Cloth of Gold is and was? So Cloth of Gold was an amazing, is an amazing collaborative print company. And weirdly, years ago, when I first um, finished my education degree, a friend of mine said, um, we're doing a banner project in Crawley, you should apply because you've got a textile background and the education and they wanted to be a collaborative community project. So I applied for that. And then while I was there, the guy that did the training was Tony Minion from Cloth of Gold. And we got on so well and our skill set was so aligned and his vision was so aligned with what I wanted to do that I then ended up working with Cloth of Gold for years and years and years. It's a collaborative print company. So we've done banner, huge banners in St. Paul's Cathedral, the Barbican, the Tate, loads of different huge venues over the course of working with Cloth of Gold. Um, through the years, Tony moved to Cornwall. Anna, who also, Anna Ferry, who also started Cloth of Gold, 
I won't say retire, but stepped down a little bit because she's still a practicing artist. And um, I turned it into social fabric. So I carried on running it alone and I sort of redescribed it as social fabric because I think the name suits what we do a lot more. But it's mainly me now. It's quite it's not so, such a big organisation. It's mainly me. And now and again, I bring in um, artists that we worked with before if I need help on projects or extra support. Yeah, and, and are most of the projects in schools? Yes, yeah. Recently they have been. I have done uh, a f- quite a few community projects in children's centres or community venues, but the majority of my recent work has been in education in schools. I feel like children need creativity now more than ever. So I'm really pleased that I've got quite a lot of work in in education still. Why do you think they need it more than ever now? I think because they spend so much time on social media and in front of a screen. And I think what we offer in art workshops, it's all about their relationship with an art tool, like a pencil or a paintbrush. And the focus is on what they're creating and they're not getting any sort of inspiration from anything else other than their own imaginations and I think that's really important to bring things back to that sort of very simple level of just the tactile experience you get from working with creativity. Do you you think that that's more important since lockdown have you noticed any changes in children since lockdown and online learning? Yes I, I have I mean With what I do, because I don't work in one school, I go from school to school to school, I don't necessarily notice the difference in one group of children from before and from after. But I do, I have been brought into a lot of schools because they say that that's what the children need. The teachers have said, can you come in and do something with mindfulness or working with nature? Or they want them to have a creative experience and also a collaborative experience because I think... There's certain year groups that um, when they came back to school find found it hard to work together again or even to be in a classroom together. Loads of things suffered from that experience that we all went through together. So, um, yeah, there was a big change. I think it's so interesting how out of touch lots of people are getting with being, with touching, with touching stuff. and. Yeah you know, just being very manual, being very in your hands. And I think um, what I've always liked in your workshops is you get quite mucky. (laughs) 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 And it's kind of quite countercultural, you know, to to get inky. Yeah. And I think now more than ever, especially, you know, like people at home, they might not have a big space where they can set up an art activity. And um, so we do lots of things like mono printing and mark making and obviously screen printing. And the children have to use a paintbrush and they have to touch the ink and they have to, you know, use, use be quite physical with what they're doing. And you do need quite a lot of space to set that up as an activity. And it, it's really nice. You know, that's one of the things that I really like about it. It's actually very simple techniques but that are accessible, but they're really enjoyable. And um, I sometimes do like art clubs in places now and again, and I always get the paintbrushes out because I think that's the thing that children don't often get at home. Yeah. And I think it's good. And some people can be quite scared of getting messy. And, um, and sometimes if I work in a sen setting, I will bring 
gloves with me. Some children are scared of it. They don't like getting ink on their hands. But just once they're in there, they get more familiar and then they're fine. Can you just go through the process of screen printing? How, how might you do it if you had a class of kids? So normally, if I was invited into school to work with a class, I would have the whole class for a drawing session. And last week, we actually had 60 children in our drawing session. And we took them all outside to draw. And it was absolutely fantastic. They absolutely loved it. It was a really brilliant day. So we start off with the drawing. And actually, within the drawing session last week, I even did a bit of yoga to sort of centre them and to be at one with the space they were in and to get them into a calm state of mind before they did the drawing. And then the children just went off and did some really beautiful images of what they could see around them. But we also provided a few resources for those that were struggling or needed a bit of extra input. So they do the drawing. And then I will cut out the drawings to create stencil shapes. And in secondary, they will cut their own drawings. And I cut exactly on the child's line. So the shapes that we end up totally replicate what the child has drawn. And then um, I work with small groups to do the printing uh, throughout the course of the day or the next few days. And we do mark making using monoprinting or relief printing or block printing to create uh, coloured background layers and then um, use the stencils on top with a silk screen to do the printing. So there's lots of little stages that go through and the screen printing is like the icing on top of the cake. That's really lovely. So actually all of their marks are on the end product, are they? Yeah, everything, everything. And that process is particularly valuable in the SEN settings because sometimes in those schools, some of the children might not have the ability to draw. So they might not make a stencil or they might make something quite abstract, but they can all access the mark making processes. And so that's really good. So then you do capture everything that comes from the children because that's the most important thing about the workshop. I never do banners where I take the finished piece away and then transform it into something beautiful. You'll see the finished piece at the end of the workshop. It all happens within the workshop. That's really interesting. That is different to some creative processes, isn't it? That you're working in real time. They see it build up. They see their images go on top. And what's the benefit of that to them, do you think? I think it gives them a real sense of pride in their work because they've seen it develop. They know what their input was. They can see their drawing. They can see their marks. They can see it being laid up. And they know that there's an artist involved who's putting it all together like a conductor in an orchestra. But they've done the physical work. It wasn't me. Well, my hands aren't going to be on that banner. The only thing I might do, obviously, I've got the overall design in my head, which I develop over the course of the workshop. And um, I've helped cut out the shapes. But that's it. Every other mark has been done by the children. And that gives them the pride because they know it hasn't been taken away or fiddled with. And they know that they did it or their classmates did it. And there's often photographic evidence of each stage taken by one of the TAs or a teacher and they see it at the beginning and at the end. And I think that does give them a real sense of pride and it shows what's possible, you know, if they learn a new skill, what they could do. And that could translate to lots of other areas in the curriculum sometimes. I've heard quite a few stories about children who've said, oh, I can't draw, I can't do art at the beginning of the workshop. And by the end of it, they've seen that they can 
and then they've gone on to try other things because it's just helped their boost their confidence yeah I think that's really interesting as you know our theme in the podcast is about repair and mending and you think of that really broadly like in terms of making connections and restoring things that may be lost but what just occurred to me when you were talking then was about in a lot of processes somehow the work gets a bit fixed at the end by the artists and it's perhaps a really good thing to be working towards that everybody is seeing the result at the same time and they're not kind of surprised by something that's been sorted out afterwards I think that's really strong I think so. It does take years of practice as well, because I think from having done my workshop for so many, I never thought, to be honest, that I would still be doing it 20 odd years later. But there's something quite magical about the whole process. And I think it has almost taken all those years of experience, because when I plan a workshop, I know what I need to make that happen. Lots of artists work in different ways, but that for me, I think that's important. I like that's what I like to see their their faces at the end going, "Wow, we just did that. That just happened in two days. I don't know how that happened, but it has happened, and I'm they're really proud of that. I like that feeling. Yeah, I like to be able to offer that. And I think that in in collaborative arts, there are often several strands in terms of why people want to do it or why the school want them to do it, and there's the skill space learning a new skill and being proud of the art but often there's also something around confidence or self-esteem or whatever do you is do you find that within what you're doing that there's a kind of there's the narrative of the art going on but actually there's also something going on with the young people you're working with yeah often I get asked to work on a particular theme so there's always a type not an agenda but there's also something else going on um so for example you know quite often I've done projects where it's about community cohesion in the aftermath of certain incidences that may have happened or the school really want the children to refocus on what the values of the school um and so it's something about culture or bringing people together so I've done lots of different projects over the years and often you know that's the bigger story to what the project is and actually I prefer it I quite like it when I'm a part of a bigger picture it has more value often do you feel the children respond to that do you think there's something that pushes them a bit if the theme is something a bit bigger like values or climate change I think you've worked on haven't you yeah 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 I think so I think it I think what's that's the amazing thing about art is where you know lots of children are passionate about all sorts of things and say there was a theme for like climate change for example I've done quite a lot of banners on that theme it's amazing because it gives them a voice art gives them a voice and then their voice is then up on the wall and it's making a statement and it's telling a story so I often describe the textiles that I make as narrative textiles because they are there to to tell a story when I design a banner for example I don't design it before I go into the school and I let that evolve through what the children have drawn so I don't tell them what to draw there'll be a theme and they draw within the theme but then the banner revolves around what they what they're saying yeah and what so it it illustrates their ideas I see 
So, Sarah, can you tell me about the project you did in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower fire? Um, I was very privileged to be asked to do that project. It was somebody who'd worked with me before and she just really felt like they wanted a project that provided some community cohesion in the aftermath of the tragedy because it was such a like it was unprecedented situation and they wanted something for the children um just to bring them together so i was asked to work in two different primary schools we printed two banners in two schools and we also the children were given the opportunity to create a t-shirt and we did some other different art activities during the workshop. And um, it just, like we were talking about, it just gave them an opportunity to say what they were feeling. So sometimes not all their words ended up on the on the fabrics, but it just gave them a, a, a place, a safe space to express themselves, do some creativity. And it was very, it was amazing that they hoped that they decided to do that workshop. It was really lovely. After that workshop happened, because it was quite successful in terms of what the objectives had been initially for it, uh, the school decided to do a project with the parents as well. And um, it was really lovely. So we gave women the opportunity to talk about their cultural stories of faith and friendship and how they were feeling after everything that had happened, they made cushion covers for their homes or to give to people who lost a lot in in the in the fire. And then after that, we then went on to do a third project because the women really wanted to. One of the themes that came out from those workshops, they were given, they were allowed to make something for themselves in that workshop. That was what the plan was. Every single woman in the workshops made something for somebody else because they just had such a need to give. Nobody said, this is for me, this is going to go on my sofa. It was more like, I'm going to give this to this person or I'm going to give this to this person. And that feeling of generosity in that community was incredible. And so the next project was, we did a project where that group came together as a team and then they printed a T-shirt for every single child in the school. And the design came from the children. There was a little drawing competition. And then the final design I put on a photo screen. And then that group of women printed hundreds of T-shirts as a team to give to all the children in the school, which was really incredible. One of the Syrian mums, um, in her response, she said that those weekly workshops had transformed her life and made her see that she had at last a place where she belonged. And it was quite incredible because she hadn't had that feeling before within that school community because, you know, they can be quite, um, school breakdowns can be cliquey. And I think for her, coming from a different community altogether, she hadn't necessarily felt like she belonged before. And so that was really wonderful because she engaged in the workshops, they worked as a team, all different mums together. They began to learn about each other as well. And, um, and then she said that, at last it gave her a place where she felt like she belonged. So that was such a wonderful outcome. I mean, I could have worked with that group for years. And I think that's the downside of what I do, is I tend to do, I go in, I do a project, and then I go off somewhere else and do another project. So I don't, I, you, you know, you you lose touch with those people sometimes along the way, which is sad, but I'm hoping that she still has that feeling in that community and I'm sure that she does she was an amazing person 
I think it, that's always a real dilemma with project work. I think that sometimes people join things because they know it's going to be limited. They wouldn't join if you said this is a three-year project. If you say it's yeah. eight weeks, they'll come because maybe you let yourself be a bit different in a shorter project. So I don't see that projects are wrong, but I think it is interesting that you then often don't know quite what happens next or you you do wonder how it would have been if you'd been able to say, great, that was a great eight weeks, let's do another one. Yeah, and actually I totally agree because I don't think people would commit for like like weeks and months and months and maybe that's the value in it and maybe just because they joined that project and they enjoyed it for a short amount of time, maybe they'll go off and have the confidence to join something else because they had a positive experience. I think that's absolutely right, yeah. And when we were talking before, we I was remembering that on a project you and I worked on a long time ago in a park in Morden in South London, we started with your work making a map with the group and then we moved on to, to do a play, a, a site-specific play. And one of the participants said to me, well, I didn't think I could do screen printing and I could. Now I don't think I can do a play, but probably I can. So I'll join. Oh, that's amazing. It literally <laughs> was the step of gaining confidence in one thing that was unfamiliar made him take the opportunity to do another thing that was unfamiliar. So I think that's... Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it is brilliant, isn't it? And it reminds us what it is that is that is going on in that work. So it brings us back in a way to your name, to the, how you've renamed the organisation Social Fabric. Yeah, I think um, it was funny. One of my friends said the word Social Fabric around that time. I think it was... Actually, I mean, what's quite amazing, I've just suddenly realised it was 12 years ago. So actually, Social Fabric, I've been doing it on my own for 12 years now, which is quite a long, long time. Um, it just described everything we do. Social Fabric just seems so perfect because it's social work. We work with lots of different... It's not social work. It's... <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> it's work that is social with people with communities with different organizations and um and we print on fabric and obviously the and also the word social fabric has that deeper meaning it underpins humanity and who we are and what we do and so I just felt like on so many levels it was just the perfect name to move forward with like literally and philosophically yeah and I, I think one of the reasons we are doing a project about repair is that we hear so often phrases around things being broken at the moment so people will often use the expression that education is broken or the health service or relationships or whatever you know it's quite a kind of current piece of terminology to think of things not not actually being connected together in the way that they're intended to be connected together so i i really get it as a as a title i think it's beautiful thanks thanks Sue. I'm aware that you've you've got a book coming out in June and I wonder if you could tell us what it's called and then tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I've actually got um I've actually got four coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry, Sarah. I hear you've got four books coming out. <laughs> I just very quickly so there's four um there's three so I've got a series called The Therapeutic Fairy Tales that were written by my good friend Pia Jones, 
who asked me to illustrate them. So we've got three new ones coming out in June and we've already got three published. And they're a series of illustrated and sensitively written stories designed to support children going through challenging life experiences. Maternal depression, divorce and end of life themes, anxiety, OCD and loneliness. And we've put the images in, in both sets of stories, because they help children to explore their own resources and qualities in times of difficulty. And then um, the other book that we've got coming out is Rewilding Children's Imaginations, um, 99 Activities Inspired by Nature and Folklore from Around the World. And the reason that book's quite interesting is because we all feel that children need more time outside but the activities in the book aren't solely about working outside they're also just sometimes they're just inspired by nature so each season contains examples of two or three folk tales from around the world and after each folk tale we've written creative activities that link to the folk tale What's, what does a folktale do that another form wouldn't do? Um, a lot of folktales, they, they're an engaging story. They come, f they teach you about the culture where the folktale or originated. So they're often like oral history. They could be passed down from one storyteller to another. They might have changed along the way. They might have gone from one continent to another. In fact, when we were doing our research into, into folktales, some of them were very similar and they the origins came from all around the world. So it's quite difficult to try to trace exactly where they came from, though we did spend a lot of time trying to do that because we wanted them to be as authentic as possible and also to respect the culture where they came from. That was really, really important. So it wasn't anything like cultural appropriation. It was definitely all about cultural appreciation. How do you know that a story is going to work? How, how, how do you kind of dig out the right stories because there might be some folk tales which actually have a quite a negative message or get uh, overcomplicated or something what what are you looking for in the story um i yeah we it was really really difficult actually so i think we tried to stay away from any stories that could be too triggering or or too negative even though some we do appreciate that sometimes those can have value when children are reading them. But within the book, we tried to stay away from them. We tried to stay away. We tried to keep to ones that had a, a message of positivity a lot of the time. I haven't really thought about that before, to be honest. But I think we unconsciously, when we looked at what book stories we were going to go forward with, I think those were our objectives. Yeah. And I imagine you develop a, a sense of what you need them yeah yeah I guess I I also think there's something there must be something for the children in the story apparently being about other people or even magical creatures or another world and it seeming to be about another world allows them to explore things they want to explore so they Definitely. they can kind of see it through the lens of a fantastical world and then it gives them a safe distance doesn't it Definitely, definitely. Um, so some of them, are, some of the activities are quite literal. Like you know, there's a, there's a really great story about a hedgehog. I put in this activity about how you can make a, a recycle a book into a hedgehog sculpture. 
So it's literally that literal. That's the activity for that story. But then within, there's also activities about creating a poem from him or writing the end of the story. So there's lots of different things. There's lots of different random activities, depending what inspired us. I definitely want to do the hedgehog one. It sounds really good. I'd love to have oh, one. Oops. Yeah. Is this like Blue Peter? You happen to have I'm one. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to grab, grab it. it. Oh, that's lovely. Can you describe <laughs> it a little bit? So this is a very simple activity. All you need is an old paperback that you might have on your shelf at home or you could pick up at a charity shop. So all you do is you put the paperback cover side down on the table and then you fold the pages into a boat-like shape mm. by folding the pages in and keep repeat the process until you actually end up with a hedgehog-looking book creature. It's quite funny. It's very, very easy to do, but it's really satisfying. That's great. I think we'll have to post a picture of it when we send out the podcast so people can have a go at it. <laughs> yeah, that would be brilliant. So, Sarah, I've come to a question which I think caused you a bit of weekend anxiety. <laughs> and it's the question that we always ask at the end of the podcast. Can everything be mended? I hope so. I hope so. I, I, I tried not to overthink. I tried not to overthink the question. And I think every time I said it in my head, I kept saying, I hope so. I think there's loads and loads and loads of amazing people out there doing what they can to bring people together and to inject positivity into the world and to help children be more creative. And, you know, everyone's doing the best they can. And I, I'm sure it can be. It it depends on what things we're identifying as broken to what we think of as mending it. But um, I think lots of stuff has to change. There's a lot that has to change. I think, um, you know, people need less pressure. You know, work, life's quite, life can be quite hard with the, all the bills people have to pay and like cost of living expenses and, all of I, oh I'm babbling now aren't I <laughs> I think you could probably see the beginning of a great long list emerging of I was, all the very I'm, hard things people have to put up with now yeah yeah I, but I think it can I think it can be I think it can I think people like you who value fixing things and value creativity and value bringing things together and value all the important things in life. There's so many of us out there. And I think that makes a big difference. Yeah. And and I mean, do you think like art making helps give young people language and a kind of confidence? I, I love the way you've said several times it gives them voice, which is really interesting because yeah. you're not talking about a speaking project or a singing project, but no, no. How does art do that so that they can navigate things? Because I, I have to say, I feel that some things can't be mended myself. And mm. I think just if you think of your own life, there are certain things you just have to live with a thing which isn't going to be resolved or which mm. a person who won't come back, those kind of things do feel a bit as if they, they can't exactly be mended. So I'm curious about how art making kind of does weave the social fabric and how does it give confidence? I think there's so many people that are shy and who 
don't necessarily express themselves well with words. And I've noticed time and time again that they will express themselves through a drawing or a picture. And even even when you're working collaboratively, it might be somebody in the group that's really good at helping somebody else. So it's an opportunity for skills to come out, what might come out, not come out in a different sort of situation that show that they're still valuable. So there's lots of different levels, I think, within art making that give people a voice. And it's not just drawing or painting. I mean, I've got a really good friend who's a social worker and she absolutely does not describe herself as creative in the least. But she loves baking and she's... We both recently tried to learn crochet. I was absolutely rubbish. She was amazing and she's gone on to make this beautiful thing. And and she, she gets so much from it. It's so therapeutic for her to just be able to sit and make and create and that's all she needs to do and it's it gives her you know helps her then to go on to do the amazing job that she does working with people in challenging situations i think we need to use our hands that's what they're for and i don't think we use them enough we don't need to use them just to do this on a keyboard we need to make things we need to build things we need to and creativity we don't just use it to make art i mean i what i worry about in the future is because there's less of it sometimes than they used to be you know we need to paint our walls we need to fix our how our homes we need to use it for so many other things other than painting but drawing and art is a way of learning how to use them again in a fun way and then you can take that creativity and use it in lots of other ways too yeah that's great that's great <laughs> oh, good that's time. lovely that's really really nice thank you very much it's been really lovely to reconnect with you and to hear about your work. Thanks so much for joining us on the Breaks and Joins podcast. Thank you so much, Sue. It's absolutely it's wonderful talking to you. As always, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Breaks and Joins podcast. And I hope you'll enjoy listening to the other podcasts too. If you want more information about the project, you can find us on www sumeo.co.uk and also on our Instagram page breaks underscore and underscore joins we'd love to hear from you a big shout out to our funders Arts Council England Necessity and the Being Human Festival and finally I'd like to thank my wonderful editor Chuck Blue Lowry and Bob Carper who wrote the music for the podcasts thanks and hope to see you soon <laughs>